read it the whole time I'm up here. My name is Beth Hartley. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Beth. And because of the grace of God and the fellowship and steps of AA and sponsorship, I've been sober since June 26, 1988. And uh, that always amazes me when I say that. Um, I got sober, actually, in Cincinnati, Ohio. We moved to North Carolina about seven years ago. And when I got there, they told me that Carrie actually stands for containment area for relocated Yankees. So <laughs> that's why we live there and not Raleigh or Durham or somewhere. So uh, I want to thank the committee. We've had just a fabulous time this weekend. Um, although, I, you know, being the southerner that I am, I came up here with linen clothes and sandals. And because it's May, I mean, you know, it's 90 at home. My husband played golf today. And uh, so it's been we've been keeping warm. But uh, we've just had a really good time. Everybody is so nice up here, and uh, thank you so much. Everybody's done a great job. <sighs> oh, it always takes a minute to get going. Um, you all mostly look like you've been coming to AA for a while. Not that you look old, but just that, <laughs> you know, I just, I mean, you know, newcomers, they kind of get that look in their eye like a dog lost on the freeway, and... I, I don't see anybody looking too panicked in here, um, but if there's anybody new here, I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous and let you know that if you're not thrilled to be here, it's okay. We, you know, we don't care. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to be here when I got here. I was not one of those people who walked through the doors of AA and said, oh, thank God I'm home and I want what you have and... You know, I just, that just wasn't my experience. I started going to AA meetings in the 60s. I'm holding up pretty well, don't you think? <laughs> I, uh, my dad got sober in 1966 when I was seven years old. And so I knew there was Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew that if you were alcoholic, you didn't have to drink, that there was a solution. I used to be the kid in the corner at the Friday night speaker meetings in Hamilton, Ohio. Uh, with the coloring book, I knew that AA was all old guys who drank coffee and ate donuts and smoked. They used to smoke indoors back then. And uh, so if you got up to, like, table height, everybody disappeared. It was really anonymous in those days. <laughs> you couldn't see across the table. And, uh, and, and I knew it was there, and I didn't have craziness in my home. I didn't have drunken, fighting parents. My mom is an alcoholic. It just, you know... My dad told me the drama and the tragic losses and the crushed hopes and dreams of his drinking. And I didn't drink till I was 15, but when I did drink, I felt so bad for him that he had such a hard time. I just <laughs> thought if he drank more like me, he could have hung in there longer. And, uh, but I was an only child, and the longer I'm here, the more aware I am that alcoholism was my problem, not alcohol. That alcohol was never my problem. Alcohol was my solution. And we were talking today that, you know, if I went 10 days without a drink, it was a, it was a long 10 days. And if you were my friend, it was longer for you than it was for me. <laughs> People were usually offering me a beer by the end of the 10 days. But I had all this thinking long, and I wouldn't have told you I was a thinker. I was an avid reader as a child. I read a lot. That was my first escape. I could dive into a book and just not, the house could have collapsed around me and I wouldn't have heard it. And I think because of all the reading, that's why school came easily to me when I got there. It certainly wasn't any work ethic. If it looked hard, I just didn't do it. And because, uh, you know, there's always that possibility of failing in public if it's hard. 
And so I, I got good marks in school. I know I'm a test taker. You know, I'm one of those people, the test take. <laughs> a comment from the peanut gallery over here. Who must not be a test taker. Um, but, you know, so I could study it, spit it out, not know what I read three days later. And, and you know, if you're a test taker, you can ace treatment. Um, you, you can be, I was always voted most likely to stay sober forever in all the treatment centers because I can say all the right things and do all the right stuff. But on the inside, I just never was enough. I never felt good enough. I never, there was always a committee in my head from the very beginning. They were all up there. None of them liked me. They all told me things like, you know, they don't really like you. They just play with you because their mother makes them. They're all talking about you now. And I just never could, you know, I couldn't, I didn't want to try anything new, like I said, because if you fail, then you look bad. And I can't ask a question. I live by this rule that it wasn't all right not to know. It just wasn't all right not to know anything. Pick a topic. I don't care. It's not okay not to know. I wouldn't even ask a question in school because if you ask a question, everybody knows that you don't know. And I, if you asked a question, I would be embarrassed for you because now everybody knows that you don't know. And I just, you know, and, and I never could, like, I just felt like if I said my name's Beth, that you were waiting for the rest, that just being Beth was never enough, that if I said, hi, my name's Beth, you would just think, and? So I always had to be super busy. I was, you know, Beth the cheerleader, Beth the night auditor, Beth Jim and Sally's daughter. Always had to have Beth, Beth the something, because if I wasn't doing a bunch of stuff, I couldn't justify my space. You know, I, I had to do big things just to, just to feel like I deserved the space I was taking up. And I couldn't, you know, I would have one good friend at a time and don't talk to my friend because she'll like you better. And then I'll have to find another friend because, you know, I can only have one at a time. And it just on and on and on like that. And when I got here and they said we suffered from self-centeredness, I didn't get that. <laughs> I thought self-centered meant selfish and vain. And I'm just ask me, I'm neither of those. And, you know, I didn't know that self-centered meant I thought everybody was watching every move I made. You know, I had, I was a spectator in my own life. I, it's like I had this little camera in my brain that watched all of you watch me. And if I was talking to somebody over here, I was acutely aware of how it might be looking to you over there. And I just couldn't make a move without calculating all that. And I remember I was telling Gary, my sponsor says that alcoholics don't really have conversations. It's just two people talking most of the time, you know, because we don't listen well. We're just talking. And I remember the first time I was about six months sober having a conversation with somebody and actually realized that I would talk and then they would talk and I was listening, you know, that I wasn't figuring out what they were going to say and choosing from my next six answers, you know, that, that we were just like, they would talk and I would talk and they would talk and I would talk. It was so amazing. I had never done it before because I was just busy up here. And uh, one of the stories that really made it uh, evident to me, when I got sober, my kids were four and six. My daughter was four and my son was six. And they weren't in my custody. But um, as they got older, my daughter wanted to swim. And, you know, she's the one that when she was younger, we thought she'd be here by now. She just, she was something else. And, uh, you know, Chuck and I used to tell people that most people save for college, we're saving for treatment. And because we just knew she was going to be here. And 
when she was 11, she wanted to be on a swim team. A lot of her friends swam. So we thought, okay, fine. We took her to try out. And the coach told her, well, you could be on the team, but you need to swim down an age group. You need to practice down an age group because you can't keep up with your age group yet. Now, this meant that 11 years old, he wanted her to practice with the nine-year-olds. And it was okay with her. I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have gotten in the water. And she was fine with that. Now, I was seven years sober. I'm always so embarrassed to tell you this. I was seven years sober when this happened, and I was having a hard time being the mother of the 11-year-old that had to swim with the 9-year-olds, you know, because how am I going to look? And uh, so she practiced with the 9-year-olds, and she went to her first swim meet, and these were USS big meets where they run all the heats and just post the results. And her very first race ever, she was 70th out of 72, and she went back the next day. I would have been trying to get my parents to relocate. <laughs> and we said, well, Sarah, you didn't win. <laughs> but you have this baseline time now. And next time you race, even if you don't win that race, if you beat your time, it's a successful race. Now, the whole time I was telling her this, I was thinking, oh, yeah, right. You know, I mean, it's about the medal. It's about winning. She beat her time, and she was happy. Now, the rest of that story is... Two years later, she was a state AA swimmer. And at 11 years old, she had never had a drink and neither had I. But I couldn't, I would have walked away the day they said practice down an age group. I could not have done it because of how it would look. And she just somehow internalized that lesson that they try to teach all of us about set the goal, work for the goal, achieve the goal. I mean, that just went by me. My outlook on life has always been, just give me the goal, you know? <laughs> I used to say I was kind of a 50-yard dash girl in a five-mile world, you know, great starter, terrible finisher. But really, I don't even want to start. I would so much rather just set up a lawn chair at the start line and let you bring me the trophy. I just... <laughs> My husband told me I'm a type AL, and there may be some others of you out there. I said, what is that? He said, well, you're definitely a type A personality, but you're lazy enough that you're not annoying. So, <laughs> and it's true. It, it really is. Um, so anyway, you know, we start watching her with interest because we had been so convinced she'd be here. And then she's, you know, doing this stuff at the swimming and she got a summer job and saved money. And in ninth and 10th grade, she still had the same friends that she'd had, you know, in kindergarten. And so we're watching her with interest kind of going, is this normal? And like we would recognize normal, you know, and uh, she just went on like that. She, by her junior year in high school, they'd opened up a Starbucks in our town and she came home the first day of school and said, you know, we went to the new Starbucks and we said, oh good, who'd you go with? Oh, Lindsay, Katie, and Jennifer. And I said, Jennifer, you went with her? And she looked at me and said, for God's sakes, Mom, that was sixth grade. Could you let it go? <laughs> I can't tell you this day what that girl did, but I don't like her. <laughs> she just, so we're looking at this child who sets goals, works for the goals, achieves the goals, you know, keeps the same friends, doesn't carry resentment, and we just said, you know, there's supposed to be one mature person in the house. Congratulations. We're pretty sure it's you. <laughs> and she's, uh, she's 26 years old now and married and, and has a, a, a beautiful daughter who's going to be three on the 4th of July and, and still, you know, doesn't appear to be alcoholic. We, 
we don't know how that happened, but we're, you know, we're had we, we had a, such, she had a, such a bright future in AA, and then she just took a weird turn on us. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? You know, all, all parents have dreams for their kids. I mean, if that gives you an idea of what my thinking was like, I just, and that was long before I drank, and uh, and so I was busy, busy, busy in junior high, I was, you know, pep club, honor society, band, student council, yearbook staff, you name it, I did it all, because if I sat still, it was too noisy, if I was alone, it was too unfriendly, I always had this chorus in my head of people who didn't like me. And one of my favorite promises in the big book says that we can be alone at perfect peace and ease because I just couldn't. I just couldn't. I never could. And in high school, when I took a drink, all of that stuff, I wouldn't have told you that I relaxed. I wouldn't have told you anything. You know, a lot of my friends were experimenting. They were falling down, throwing up, looking bad. So I just put a glow on the first time and it was enough. It was enough that I took my best friend out the next night to get her drunk so I'd have somebody to drink with. And that friendship didn't make up for another year because we drank different from the beginning. You know, from the be- from the beginning. Uh, if I could have gotten it every day in high school, I would have been a daily drinker. I have no doubt. I never had issues with morning drinking. I think it only makes sense to drink in the morning when you're in high school. You know, you have to sober up before your parents get home from work. It was very practical. And... Uh, On the topic of practicality, I was telling Jay, she was talking about that bottle rolling around under her car seat last night. I said, you know, that's why I drank Wild Irish Rose. The bottle was square and it doesn't roll out from under the car seat. You have to be, you know, have to think these things through. But I started drinking in high school and immediately I was off and running. And I could drink with the big boys, so I did. You know, I never, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and they said hang out with the women, I was horrified. I just horrified. I thought, I don't even drink with girls. Why would I want to hang out with them now? You know, I mean, in high school, they're girls and they fall down, they throw up, they wear pink in public, you know, they just, and later it would get complicated because it was, you know, you know, I mean, like, oh, that was your husband. I'm so sorry. And. just never thought to ask that stuff at last call, you know, Um, which is where I did my dating mostly. So, I mean, you know, it's like if they're still there on Sunday, it's a relationship. (laughs) I had a one night stand drag into a five year marriage based on that never admit when you're wrong rule. And, uh, But, you know, I just, so I didn't, I didn't hang out with women. I didn't want anything to do with women. I didn't, because, you know, women to me, they were competition or they were of no consequence or every now and then there was one who could look me in the eye and I knew she could see right through me because underneath it all, I never had a clue what was going on, but you can't tell anybody because it's not all right not to know. And every now and then somebody looked me in the eye and I knew she knew. So they had to be avoided too. And I could drink a lot. So like I said, I drank with the big boys because I could. I had a huge capacity for alcohol. I loved to drink. Sometimes I forget to mention that. Loved to drink. My day went better with a drink. 
I could drink a lot. I wasn't a falling down drunk. I wasn't a crying drunk. I wasn't a fighting drunk, uh, mostly out of sheer cowardice. I was afraid if I hit you, it would hit me back. But, you know, I look like I would hit you, so most people left me alone. And, uh, and really, I mean, you know, I mean, when fights break out, drinks get spilled. It's just a waste. But... <laughs> I just, you know, I was just a happy drunk, or I would have told you I was a social drinker, you know, and the more I drank, the more social I got, and hence the last call dating a lot. I was very, very social by two in the morning, friendly even, and, um, you know, I just, I just loved it, and I wanted, I grew up in Ohio, that was my first resentment, uh, I didn't want to be from Ohio, I don't know if any of you have been to Ohio, um, I'm not hearing big bursts of applause, so that tells me a lot. <laughs> I was born in California, but I guess because of my dad's drinking, they moved to Ohio when I was like two. And I can remember being six years old. As soon as I found out it was warm other places year-round, I was on a campaign to get my parents to move, and they never would. I can remember being in first grade, looking at a map of the United States, and seeing California and Florida and Texas and Ohio. And just think you can look at a map and tell that nothing is happening in Ohio, you know? And where does that come from at six years old, you know? I mean, I know now I was, by, I was already at six years old, I was restless, irritable, and discontent. Already at six years old, if I lived somewhere else, I would be happy. If we had a different house, if my mom acted different, if she didn't smoke, you know, the other moms don't smoke. If we had this, if we didn't have that, I would be better. And that just carried on and on and on. If I, you know, later in life, if I'd come with them, if I'd left with them, if we'd gone to this party, if I hadn't gone to that party, I just never, ever was comfortable where I was. Every now and then, all the planets would align, you know. But most of the time, I was wishing I was somewhere else with somebody else doing something else because where I was just never quite fit. And one of the big gifts I've gotten here is wanting to be where I am most of the time. You know, that my sponsor says, be where your hands are. And, and most of the time, I am comfortable where I am wanting what I have. And that is such a huge gift because I just chased that and chased that and chased it. So I'm in Ohio, I get out of high school somehow, mostly because I didn't drink my freshman year, so I had a lot of credit stacked up. And I go off to college because I grew up in a college town, I, that's just what you did. And I went to college and I was a 17 year old freshman in the middle of a 21 state and uh, I didn't have a lot of access to alcohol and I was just miserable because I don't know what to say after my name's Beth. I don't, you know, I just, I don't know what to say after my name's Beth, like I said, I feel like you're waiting for the rest. So if I meet you and I say, hi, my name's Beth, and she says, hi, my name's Joanne, and <sighs> I know it's my turn to talk, you know? Everybody in my head launches telling me it's my turn to talk. She's staring at you. You should say something. Well, you'll look dumb now if you talk. You'll look dumber if you don't. But yeah, what are you going to say? You know? So it's like they're all up there arguing. I'm paralyzed. We have to go. And, uh, you know, I just couldn't do it. I just didn't know. And the same thing happened when I got to AA. Because when I walk into a room full of people, it splits into two groups. You know, all of you and me. <laughs> And you all know each other, and you're all talking big book stuff, and I don't know anything, and I have to go. And, uh, and it just was like that. 
I ended up, I, I flunked out of school. Um, I hear it's helpful if you go to class. I might, you know, tried that later in life. But I just, I just couldn't do it. And I go back to Ohio and I get a job, you know, in a bank because that was, I knew everybody was watching, right? So I get a, you know, banking is respectable and you can do that without a degree. And they worked on Monday mornings. That was not working out for me at all. And uh, I had a friend who had a friend in Florida and he said, we should go. And I said, we should. I had always wanted to run away from home. I was ready. I made a run for the border with him. And... Uh, Two weeks later, when I called my mom to tell her where I was, she asked me why I didn't just tell her I was moving. And I thought, well, that's kind of stupid when you're running away from home. <laughs> and she said, you know, Beth, you're of age. You could have just left. And I thought, oh. you know, I mean, it never once occurred to me that I was of legal age and I could just say I'm moving and go. I mean, I was on the run. And... Uh, you know, I got a job down there at a convenience store, and it was so transient down there that if you went to work three days in a row, you were management material. So <laughs> I was assistant manager by the time I called her. And, you know, and she said something to me that she said a lot. She said, how could you do something this stupid and land on your feet? It just made her crazy. She had this crazy idea there should be consequences for your actions. I never really liked that rule. And... Uh, so I'm in Florida. Well, now there's no checks on my drinking down there. And, you know, it's one of, one of my rules in Ohio was don't drink before noon, you know, unless it's 80 degrees out. You know, as soon as it's 80, crack that beer while well, I'm in Florida. Now it's 80 at 7 o'clock in the morning. Yes. You know, and I lived in this little tiny town. It was three miles from one end to the other. And these people bought beer on this end of town to drink on the way to the bar on this end of town. Those are my people. <laughs> And by the end of eight months, it, you know, I was looking like I was going to maybe have to move to Ohio back home because I couldn't support myself. I was out of places to work. I was out of guys to date. There was only three bars in that town. And uh, I just was running out of options quickly. And I had so known that Florida would be my answer. You know, I, we have a friend in, in Cincinnati, and he said, really, they should have just put a sign at the state line of Florida, Arizona, and California that said, this state doesn't work either. <laughs> and we could have all just, you know, you'd say, if you see a car pull up, read it, and then just <sighs> turn around and leave, you know, it's an alcoholic, you know. But they didn't have a sign, so, you know, I'm down there, and I'm thinking I'm going to have to move back. And then this guy, you know, miracle of miracles, this guy moves to town from California, and uh, he didn't read the sign either. And that was... You know, he had everything I was looking for in a guy. He had a house, a car, and a job. And, uh, of course, the joke was on me. He got tonsillitis two months later and didn't go back to work for about three years. But, you know, I never, I never, what I've realized in sobriety was I never really, like, dated who I was dating. I was always dating potential. Do you ever do that? Just date potential, you know? Oh, this is who he's going to be when I'm done with him. And, uh so anyway, we hooked up, and that, that was just, you know, kind of five-year slow, torturous dance that we did together. And, and uh, you know, it just was, is he alcoholic? I have my ideas. You know, you can't declare anyone else alcoholic. But And it was pretty easy to look good next to me back then, but I don't know how he would stack up next to, you know, somebody who wasn't one of us. 
and uh, and we moved to the Keys. You know, we had this, our son, and then we moved down to the Keys. We went down on Fourth of July weekend. We liked it. We came home on Tuesday, moved on Friday with a baby and four hundred bucks. Hey, let's move to the Keys. Hey, mom, move to the Keys, but don't worry, I'm assistant manager at this restaurant. You know, <laughs> you could just hear her kind of pounding her head on the phone, saying, "How can you do that and land on your feet?" Because I was I was like that guy in the cartoons that walks down the sidewalks and the safes and the pianos just kind of crash behind them. You know, I mean, I just I would get clipped every now and then, but I just never got what I should have gotten. The first car I wrecked, I was just I was just neat. I shouldn't have been. Well, I drove because I couldn't walk. And, um, you know, and I smashed into a bridge and there was no DUI. There was no license suspension. I got a bill from Butler County for the bridge. Um, And and the only time I was ever suspended from school, it snowed, so there was no school. You know, I mean, that's the kind of goofy stuff. They're so happy for me when I tell that one in the jails. You know, they're just so thrilled that I never got caught. But uh, I just, that's the kind of stuff that happened to me. I just would skate out of it over and over, and I just kind of counted on that. I just kind of always knew I would skate somehow. And we moved down to the Keys, and I got this, I'm aware this oceanfront resort in the upper Keys, and it's, you know, there was another resort down the road where the old, like, quiet money went, but we had all the Miami drug money where we were, and it was fast boats and outside issues and $100 bills and Tiki John's Rum Runners, and it was, oh, it was just, all the security guards were bikers, you know, it just was a fabulous place to work, and uh, I went from the restaurant to being their night auditor. And now they've doubled my pay, and there are seven bars on the property, and I have a key to all seven bars, you know, and they pay me. It's still, I think that might be the best job I ever had. And, uh, you know, my job at night, I would go around and ring out the register at the one bar, and we'd have a drink, and I'd ring out the tiki bar, and we'd have a drink, and then we'd go lock the elevator upstairs at the restaurant bar and have a drink and do some outside issues so we could stay up the rest of the night and you know because I was a child of the 70s and there was stuff you know floating around everywhere and if you had it I would do it you know you always hear this my drug of choice and I mean my drug of choice was yours you know if if you had it I would do it and uh you know, there was there was a lot floating around, and, and I did most of it. Um, you know, an acute fear of needles probably kept me from killing myself. I, I still I can't even look when they give me a flu shot. It's really embarrassing. But you know, I just it was there. I did it, and when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't struggle with am I an addict or am I an alcoholic because I realized that you know eventually everything that interfered with my drinking had to go. Everything, my kids, my integrity, my employability. And the drugs had to go, too, because the drugs began to interfere with my drinking. I reached a point where if I did these, I was blacking out at 6 o'clock instead of midnight, and that's just not good on an extended period, you know. And if I did this, this over here was my kind of I'm not drinking drug because nothing tastes good anyway, and there was a lot of that in the Keys. And, you know, the only one I miss sometimes is the diet pills because I, it's the only time in my life where I was ever – I was thin. I could drink for days. And my house was clean, you know. <laughs> I have never been able to accomplish all that together since. <laughs> but we, you know, it was expensive in the Keys, so we started a little kind of home-based business, a little part-time job, and uh, in addition to our regular jobs, because there was a lot of importing and exporting down there, as you can imagine. And so we opened up a little just local distributorship. And... Uh, <laughs> got arrested as you could imagine so 
I remember the look. Do you ever tell a normal person what you really think and then just look at the look on their face, you know? I told the probation officer that I really just thought of it as a part-time job, and um, she just gave me one of those looks that they give us, and she said, well, Beth, you know, it, you may think of it as a part-time job, but down here we call it sale of a controlled substance. And I was like, oh, well, you know. But even that, you know, we kind of skated out of that too. And by now I went out of my marriage because a lot of this is he is my problem. But I can't say that I went out because that it will be my fault if the marriage fails, you know. Uh, so I just drank until he couldn't stand it. And he said get out, which is what I was working for. And when he said get out, he only had to say it once because now it's his fault. That's all I was looking for was it, it would be his fault because I can't say I made a mistake. And I called my mom, and she wouldn't relocate me in Florida, but she would send me a plane ticket back to Ohio. And, uh, you know, what was I going to do? I had a, a two-year-old and a baby. So in 1984, I moved back to Cincinnati, Ohio. And I thought, okay, maybe, maybe I should go to AA, maybe. I really thought if I just quit drinking with bikers that my life would calm down. But, you know, because so I tried, like, my mom's neighborhood. The whole neighborhood just kind of stepped out of an L.L. Bean catalog, you know. It's just very suburban. And, uh, and I was not very suburban, but... I went to a bar in her neighborhood, and and, uh, and the only guy in the whole place in a Harley shirt bought me a drink. So I was like, well, there you go. You know, what's the girl to do? But I tried AA, and in Cincinnati in 1984, I mean, I was only 25, and Young People's was on fire down there. Ikipah had just been in Cincinnati in 1983. They were, they had a Monday night meeting that was 200 people. They had a Friday night meeting that was 150 people. It was enthusiastic, active, sponsored, structured Alcoholics Anonymous. But like I said, when I walked into a meet, into any room, it splits into two groups, all of you and me. And I walked in and looked around, and you know, and, and I don't want to be new, right? Who wants to be new? Because we know you don't know if you're new. So I'm, you know, I might have given them my name once, but people won't really remember my name enough. And not that I ever volunteered anything past that. And you all knew each other, and I just, I had to go, you know, because. I can go to a bar by myself. If I got five bucks, I'm good. You know, I know who can drink as much as me. I know who shoots pool as well as me. I know who knows where the party is when the bar closes. That's all I need to know. And it's really easier to go to the bar by yourself because you never know when true love is going to strike. And you gotta be, <laughs> got to be free to go, you know what I mean? And uh, can't, can't have to take your friend home. And uh, so I just, you know, I tried... And then by 1985, my kids were removed from my custody because I, I was home and there was nothing to drink. And they were in bed, and I walked down the street to the bar. There was a bar about four doors down. And my son woke up, and he couldn't find me, and he came out on the front porch and cried, and the neighbors called the police. And when the police came, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out where I was because my car was parked right out front. So they just called down to the bar to see if I was there and did I want to come home. And, and my mom got that call that no mom wants to get at 2 in the morning, you know come get your grandchildren because your daughter's under arrest. And she had to get out of bed and come pack up those kids and take them to her house. My daughter was one, 15 months old, and my son was three. She was totally unprepared for children. But I'm not hurting anybody. Leave me alone, butt out. Mind your own business, you know. That's what I'm telling her. That's what we all tell our family. We're not hurting anybody but ourselves, butt out. And uh, so she gets these kids, like, bam, she was my age now when she got the kids. And, uh... And I went down to jail, 
overnight and then they told me that if I went through treatment I maybe wouldn't stay in jail so that seemed like a good plan and I found a treatment center it ended up being all women and six weeks long it was just God's cruel joke on me but uh I was you know and I was gonna get out and go be sober with my dad and my dad died the 10th day I was in there and uh, and I was devastated because I was gonna go be Jim's daughter I don't know how to be Beth and now that's shot to hell. And it turned out I'm the only child of divorced parents, so I got all of the insurance money. And, uh, and I got to drink like I wanted to drink for the next two and a half years. But I didn't know that right away. And while I was in treatment, something interesting was happening. Because like I said, I'm a test taker. And I already had my own big book when I got there because when I lived in the Keys, I had been fired from that perfect job because I went to happy hour one day at five and I was still there at 11 when I had to clock in and they weren't very happy with me. And so I went to an AA meeting because I kind of knew, you know. So in 1983, I go to the Tuesday night Key Largo group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's a small discussion meeting. Now, I've been to some meetings with my dad, but when they went around to introduce themselves, I would just say, my name's Beth, I'm with him. Because I don't know about you, but when you have a sober parent in AA, you can't wonder if you're alcoholic. You can't say out loud, you can't put out into the universe your name and the A word in the same sentence. You know, I've heard people say they just sat in the bar and said, oh, I'm alcoholic, who cares? But if you have a sober parent and you know there's AA and you say, oh, I'm alcoholic, who cares? A big book drops out of the sky. The bartender will hand you a meeting schedule and the AA police will come get you and take you to a meeting. So... I never wondered, um, but I went to this AA meeting in the Keys in 1983, and it was, it was a discussion meeting, and there was maybe 15, 20 people there, so everybody's looking at you, you know, and they were very nice, and they were very, the meeting's over at 9, 9.30, it's a Tuesday night, they invite me to Perkins, do they have Perkins here? Tim Hortons, same kind of thing, right, so... And I'm just looking at these people. They're all old. I mean, they're 40, 50, you know, old, old, old. And it's 930 at night, and they've invited me to Perkins. You know, I've got a Harley Park down the street, and I'm just thinking, okay, it's Tuesday night at 930. I've just been invited to Perkins. My life is over. <laughs> I was a bar drinker, and... Uh, you know, but I went to my boss and told him I knew I had a problem. I was going to AA. One AA meeting, I get my job back. AA works, it really does. And uh, I went to the Friday night Key Largo meeting and told him I got my job back. And that was pretty much the end of my AA career in the Keys. And then, so, so I gave it a shot in 1984, you know, and, and I know I gave it a good two weeks. I mean, I know I did, but it just wasn't happening. And then in 1985, I end up in treatment, but I'm a rock star there because I have my own big book already. Because, oh, that's what I was going to tell you. When I, when I went to this meeting in the Keys, I called my dad and told him I'd been to a meeting and that I said I was an alcoholic. That's the first time I ever said that I was an alcoholic. And, uh, and within a week, I got a box from him. And it had a big book. And at 12 and 12, each day a new beginning, 24 hours a day, one day at a time, a tape of his talk, a few bookmarks. I don't know how long he'd been gathering it all up, boy, but it, one meeting, it's in the mail. The box is in the mail. So when I get to treatment, I have a tape of my dad's talk. I have my own big book already. I've highlighted what I, in case you want to see what I think is important, you know, I've highlighted a few things in case you're flipping through. And, uh, and I'm a test taker, so I can ace treatment. And I was the one they got to talk to women who didn't want to leave their children for six weeks. 
And I could tell them all the right stuff better six weeks now than forever later because if we're not sober, we can't be parents. But the problem was developing quickly, and that's what the book talks about, the, a double life that we lead, the one we want the world to see and the one that we know is true. And what was happening was I was realizing pretty quickly that I did not want my children back, that I was glad they were at my mother's house, that it was too hard to be a single parent. And at my mom's house, they were getting read to every night before they went to bed, and they were getting a bath every night, and they were sleeping on clean sheets, and they were going to daycare on time in clean clothes, and they were getting dinner at dinner time, and I couldn't do any of that. And I hated her for doing it. I would set her up. This is the kind of daughter I am with untreated alcoholism. When my kids would come visit me on a weekend periodically, on Sunday I would start to talk to them about getting an apartment soon so we could live together again, knowing it was crap, knowing it wouldn't happen, but knowing that they would go home excited and tell grandma about it, and she would have to be the bad guy and talk them down. That's the kind of daughter I am with untreated alcoholism, but leave me alone, I'm not hurting you. You know, I can't believe what I put my family through. And so the kids stayed at mom's, and now I've got the insurance money, so I kept drinking, and, and uh, for the next two and a half years, I got to drink like I wanted to drink, and the kids stayed at my mom's. I went through treatment a couple more times to stay out of jail. Um, and by the end of 1987, I'm living in a friend's, I lived in an attic too. I used to say I moved into an attic apartment. And when I was about 17 years sober, I realized it was not an attic apartment. It was an attic. <laughs> it was not an apartment until I got there. And, uh, you know, it, and it's just gray in the Midwest in November. And I would wake up and it would be 5:30, and I didn't know if it was day or night, you know? And I think, well, I'll go back to sleep, and when I wake up, it'll be dark or it'll be light because I didn't have enough money to drink all day. So I couldn't bear the thought of getting up at 5.30 and heading to the bar and find out it was 6 a.m. instead of 6 p.m. So I'd think, oh, I'll just go back to sleep, and when I wake up, you know, then I'll know. And I would toss and turn and sleep forever and wake up, and it would be 5.45, and it would be gray. And I just, when I look back, it's just like there was just no color in my life. Everything was just gray. And after I got sober, I remember thinking, why didn't I just get sober? You know, did you ever think that? I mean, those of you who knew AA was there and kept drinking, I, well, why didn't I just get sober? You know, I knew what to do. Um, we're, we're all good at talking about knowing what we need to do while we sit in the bar. And, uh, <laughs> You know what I realized, and I didn't realize it until somebody else said it. I, I was listening to a guy speak in Cincinnati, and he said what it came down to was he knew if he drank, he would probably be miserable, but he knew if he didn't drink, he would definitely be miserable. And as long as he took a drink, there was always a chance that this would be the night that it worked again, you know, that there was at least a shot at having a good time in that bottle. And I thought that was it, you know, that was it. And I just kind of hit an emotional bottom and, and uh, the end of 87 and just prayed one night, God, I cannot live like this anymore. You've got to do something. And I remembered the big book that my dad had sent me, and I pulled it out, and, and I read Bill's story because that's where I always start when I read the big book. It's page one, right? I mean, if they wanted you to read the Roman numerals, they would have made them page one. <laughs> and I just, you know, you get to treatment. If you've been through treatment, you get to treatment, and they tell you this is the design for living. The instructions are in the big book. And I would open to page one, Bill's story, and it would say, war fever ran high in a New England town. And I would just think, oh, yeah, this is helpful, you know? <laughs> I mean, what do you do with that? He's old. He's dead. Who cares? And uh, 
But that night, you know, what I didn't know was that Bill's story was just a speaker meeting in print, that when they put that book together, there were not meetings on every corner. And they put one man's story of what he was like, what happened, and what he was like now in the front so that somebody like me could read it, maybe identify, and maybe keep reading. And that night I read Bill's story and I identified. For the first time, I, I felt how he felt. I knew how he thought. And I slept with my big book. And the next morning I woke up and I felt pretty good. And I didn't really want to drink. And, and uh, But that was the end of that effort at sobriety, you know. Because I, I did then what I did a lot. Nothing, you know. I didn't pray again. I didn't read another chapter. I didn't go to a meeting. I didn't call anybody. And by the end of the day or the next day, the voices in my head were saying, oh, you may as well drink. You know you're going to drink. Just get it over with. And, you know, there are several times in my life where I can look back, and I'm convinced, you know, if you've ever got a period in your life where you know God removed the obsession to drink, but then later you drank anyway, you know, it's that wasn't, I, I can see three or four times in my life when God took away the obsession to drink. But it doesn't stay gone forever without my cooperation. You know, there's a guy in California that says, if you think God will do it all for you, lock yourself in a closet. And when you get hungry, pray for a hot dog. You know, there are things that we have to do. And I was great at surrendering, you know, because I said, I'm a coward, really. And I'll surrender if the heat's on. But staying surrendered is kind of tricky, you know, because I don't know about you, but when I've surrendered and, you know, crawled back to AA, about two weeks later, I'm feeling better. And I, the first thing I get back is my opinion. And, you know, once I got my opinion back, I can start evaluating how well you are doing and what you're doing here and how well you're doing it and where I stack up against you. And I don't really need to do everything you do. And, you know, lame, lame, lame. You know, I mean, who wants to go to AA really? Have that, is it up here? Is it that there's just kind of like this trend down in the States now where almost every weekly drama, one of the characters is going to AA? Has that happened up here? Or do you watch the same? I mean, it's like, and I always think, no, don't do that. Because don't they look lame on television? You know, when they're in that, like, thanks, Buffy. It's like, oh, you know. And I, I was thinking, oh, my God, they're just doing damage here because it looks so lame. Who would ever want to go? Right? And then I realized that's how it looked to me when I went and didn't want to be there. You know what I mean? That AA looked lame to me right up until it didn't. But that you catch that spirit in the room. And that really you can't catch that spirit on TV. And that was, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? That it's like when I walked in the room the first time, it, I could have been watching it on TV. It looked just that lame to me. But all of a sudden, it just shifted, you know, and that, that spirit is catching. And so anyway, I did end up drinking again then at the end of 87, but weird things started happening. I mean, I was drinking in the Dewdrop Inn in Norwood, Ohio, great place. <laughs> I think every town has a Dewdrop Inn. And, um, you know, the bartender starts talking about getting sober, and some guy I'm shooting pool with used to go to this AA clubhouse in Cincinnati, and I'm surrounded by people talking about AA, the book's, Big Book and 405 Oak Street in the Dew Drop Inn. And, uh, and I kind of, I mostly didn't drink in early 88, uh, on and off a couple times. But, you know, uh, by June of 88, I just had this brilliant thought that I'd been gone from Florida four years and I bet everybody down there was going, God, I wish Beth would come back. <laughs> and uh, so I ran away from home for a second time at 29 years old. 
I had an emergency credit card of my mother's. You know, I was allowed to carry it for emergencies. And I'll tell you, getting to Florida was an emergency that day. And I took off to Florida. And thank God, back then, $3,000 was a big limit on a credit card or else I'd be in prison now. I, I mean, I would have done damage you couldn't undo. But I got down to Florida, and, of course, there was no homecoming parade, and nobody was really excited to see me. And on June 26, 1988, I was in the airport in Fort Myers, Florida, and the credit card wouldn't take a plane ticket home, and I didn't even have a dollar for a beer. You know, I didn't have enough money for one drink. And if I had had enough for one, I could have gotten two. But I didn't have enough to go get the first one, and I didn't want to be asked to leave the airport bar because we don't want your kind here. You know, I just couldn't bear the thought of that. And I'm looking around. There's a lot of retired people in Florida, and I thought, well, I could just snatch a purse of a little old lady, you know, and maybe I get lucky and there'd be some cash in there. But I was so hungover, and I knew I would pick on the little old lady that still did aerobics twice a week. <laughs> <laughs> She would run me down and take her purse back, and I would look oh so bad. And uh, so I called my mom and told her where I was and what I had done, and she said, call me later and hung up. That wasn't looking real good. And I called her later, and she said, I've booked you a plane ticket, but I want you to understand that I'm really not flying you home. I'm flying the children's mother home, and it's only because we're afraid we'll never see you again if we don't. And I got on a plane June 26, 1988. I hadn't had a drink all day. I didn't get a drink on the plane. I had no idea it was going to be my sobriety date, or I'm sure I would have tried. <laughs> and when she picked me up at midnight at the airport, she drove me straight to the county detox. And I was not amused. I just wanted to go home and go to sleep. And she said what I know now is one of the hardest things she's ever said, because I'm her only child. This county detox is in a particularly violent part of Cincinnati. It's on the national news periodically for violence and... Uh, and she took me there and she said, go in or don't, but you can't come home with me. I'm done. I've done everything for you that I can do. You have to do it yourself. And when she left that night, she didn't know really if she would ever see me again. You know, her only child. Because if I had turned around and walked away off the steps of that place, I could have just wandered off into the night and been gone. And, that, you know, I mean, they don't even find bodies down there most of the time. But I'm not hurting anybody. Leave me alone. So I went in, and the next morning I wake up, and I'm 29 and a half years old. And, you know, I really never had planned to be 30. I just figured I'd be dead. I just never, you know, I mean, why make plans if you're not going to be there? And I, you know, because I, I mixed drugs and alcohol, and I drove drunk, and I rode motorcycles drunk, and I ran around with very large men in black leather that had weapons. And, you know, I, I bartended in places where people shot at each other, and I just should have been dead over and over and over and over. And now I'm in this detox bed, and I'm 29 and a half years old, and I realize that I am distressingly healthy. You know, I just... Clearly, I'm not going to drop dead of natural causes anytime soon. And if I was going to be dead from some other cause, it would have happened. And I mean, the only reason I never tried to kill myself is I knew I would live. You know, I knew I'd be one of those people that lived and I'd just be maimed and look bad. And, uh, and I just, it was like this voice came down and just said, people like you don't die, Beth. And I just was like, oh, God, you know. And I realized that I was going to live another 40 or 50 years whether I drank or not. But there, you know, I mean, I was a wino at 29, you know, and there was a lot. Of, and I had done a lot of stuff women have to do to drink, but there was a lot of it I hadn't had to do yet, and I knew it was out there. 
And I was still, you know, I mean, I had all my limbs and both eyes and all my own teeth. And I knew all of that could go, plus a lot worse. And I knew that day with clarity that no matter how bad it was, it could get worse. And then it would get worse. And then it would get worse. That there were levels of worse out there I hadn't even thought of. And uh, one of the things I've learned living in the South is... uh, Somebody was talking one day about how to boil a frog. Now, you may not think you need to know this, but bear with me. (laughs) If you throw a frog into boiling water, it will jump out. If you put a frog in a pan of cold water and turn up the heat a little bit, he'll adjust. And then you turn up the heat a little more, and he'll adjust. And you turn up the heat a little more, and he adjusts. And next thing you know, he's in a pot of boiling water dead. Now, isn't that alcoholism? Isn't that alcoholism? It gets worse and we adjust. And it gets worse and we adjust. And every now and then we rally, but we never, you know, we started up here and then we adjust down and we adjust down and we rally, but we only rally to here, you know, but we rally just enough that the next day we're like, man, I almost overcorrected and went to AA, you know. (laughs) Thank God I didn't do that. It's better now. And, And then down we go again. And, uh, and I knew that's what was in store for me, whether I drank, you know, if I kept drinking. And I just had this passing thought that whatever those people in AA are doing seems to be working for them. And what I was doing clearly was not working for me. So I kind of turned myself into AA. And uh, when I got out of detox, I got out of detox on Friday of 4th of July weekend, which I guess you guys probably don't celebrate a lot up here, but it's a big big holiday down there and everything was closed until Tuesday I could my car was impounded I wasn't sure why yet but I knew there were some pending charges that had to do with it and uh, I couldn't get my car till Tuesday I'd made arrangements to go into this hotel for women that should have been a sign of surrender I couldn't get in there until Tuesday I couldn't do anything until Tuesday and I'm getting out of detox on Friday and I just scraped up enough money to get in a cheap hotel that was on the bus line because I knew if I went to the town where I lived, I would drink. I knew that. My experience said that. And so I just stayed in this drink motel on Reading Road. They had a pool and no bar. And I just, I went to a meeting the first night out of detox. And this woman talking, she was giving a lead. And, and she told the whole room full of people that alcoholism, not alcohol, alcoholism had taken her to the place where she didn't want to work. And she didn't want to take care of her daughter. She just wanted to drink. And I had never heard anybody say they didn't want to care for their child before. That was my biggest secret. That was the one I couldn't tell anybody. And she was telling a whole room full of people. So I got her number after the meeting, and I called her the next day. And it took forever because, you know, I'd be like, oh, she doesn't really want you to call. Everybody's in committee now, you know. She'll say, Beth who? You know, she doesn't want to talk to you. On and on. And finally, after half an hour, I called her and just said, I got your number last night. I have no idea what to say to you. I'm practicing using the phone. And she just laughed and said, that's what I had to do, too. And that's what I tell new people. Just call me and tell me, you know, practice dialing the phone. We don't have to, or do, I guess you don't have to dial anymore. But by the way, as Allison was... <laughs> Do y'all know your sponsor's phone number in this age of cell phones? Because I'll tell you what, when you forget your cell phone, it's good if you know your sponsor's number. I, uh, that was something I learned. They told us, because when I was sober, we didn't all have cell phones yet, but speed dial was coming into vogue. And somebody said at the meeting, oh, and I, and I have my sponsor on speed dial, ha, 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 you know. And, and, uh, and somebody said, don't do that. Because if you're out somewhere and your butt's falling off, memory five is not going to help you in a payphone. 
And I just took that to heart. And even still, I call my sponsor every week and I dial her number every week, every week, you know, 402-291-5283. That is my sponsor's phone number. And if you don't know yours, you should learn it. Cell phones break, cell phones get lost. And uh, anyway, so um, I was gone, but now I'm back. Oh, God, my son and I, you can't set us loose in a hardware store together. There's so many shiny things. We just get lost. Um, so I started going to AA, and I started going to this big book meeting because I knew from all my trips through treatment, you should read your book every day, right? And, uh, and I thought this would count if I went to a big book meeting every day. Because when I read at home, I couldn't read anyway. My brain was sawdust. If I tried to read at home, I would open the book, and 20 minutes later, I'd still be on the same page. Or else I'd be 20 pages in and have no idea what I read. And even in a meeting where they were reading it out loud, it would still kind of go like, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed her. I wonder what it will cost to get my car out of impound today. I better call that guy after the meeting, you know? And it'd be like, somebody turn the page, and I'd be back, and... Uh, but, you know, and they would go around the room. They read a whole chapter at every meeting, so then maybe I wouldn't get called on because that chewed up half of the hour. And I had my day free at 1 o'clock. It was just a win-win all the way around. But God's got a great sense of humor. And what happened was I had my day free at 1 o'clock every day, and at about 4.30 I'd remember that I had no life. <laughs> so i go back to the clubhouse at 6 for the 8.30 meeting because I just had nothing to do. And, uh, and, you know, when they were reading it, I started to hear it. And I know I started to hear it because I'd started answering phones at my mom's office because I was pretty much unemployable, but I could go answer phones for her. And I would leave at 11, go to the noon meeting and go back after. And I went to the noon meeting around three weeks over. And I'm on my way back to her office and I stopped in a Walgreens or somewhere to run an errand. And I decided to check in and see what everybody's talking about, right? Because, I mean, they're all still up there now. I just don't check in with them much. And uh, so I pop up into my head to see what everybody's talking about. And somebody in my head is going, that was so cool what Guy said at the meeting today. And somebody else is going, I didn't know that was in the book. Did you? And somebody else is going, I didn't know that was in the book. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, the voices in my head are getting sober, you know? And, <laughs> They're discussing the meeting without me. And, uh, okay, I'm out of here. And uh, I just left them alone. And God's biggest joke on me was that people who go to big book meetings on purpose tend to read the book and do what it says. And what I had done by going to that noon big book every day was plop myself into the middle of the most active people in Cincinnati AA. And they just dragged me into it. The, they had me answering phones at intergroup by the time I was nine days sober. They had me in there on Tuesday and Friday, so I couldn't drink in between. And they, you know, and, and I was going to two meetings a day. And about somewhere between three and four weeks sober, somebody said, Beth, you've been around before. Why don't you write an inventory? And I thought, okay, why don't I? Never occurred to me I could be not ready. <laughs> So I got the big book, and I followed the directions, and I wrote the inventory, and that woman who didn't want to take care of her daughter became my sponsor, and she heard my fifth step, and this was all before I was four weeks sober, and I have never looked back, never, because you know what? I could not have gone three months or six months or a year or, God forbid, three or four years without writing that inventory. I could not have done it. There was too much noise in my head. And that was, it quieted the voices and it allowed me to go on. And, and you know, the big book says there's nothing in there about a step a month or a step a year. It says if you have decided you want what we have, 
and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, you are ready to take certain steps, period, period. And I'm so glad nobody made me wait because my life took off and I have never looked back. And I got in the middle and I stayed in the middle and my kids started spending weekends with me and they would just come to meetings. My kids did four meetings a week from Friday to Sunday because <laughs> I didn't know what to do with them. You know, my biggest fear was that I would be unable to love my children. I was afraid that alcoholism had just stripped me of the ability to even love. But I brought them to meetings because I didn't know what else to do with them. And you guys taught me how to talk to my kids and get to know my kids. Because when I brought them to meetings, you would sit down in a chair and look them in the eye to talk to them. And you called them by name. And you knew they played soccer. And you knew who played what position. And that they had a big game last week. And who won. And you colored with Sarah. And you asked them to help you go get coffee cups. And my children, who had become invisible around me, because what they heard from me over and over was, I love you, go away. You know, because I had nothing to give them. I love you. Go away. And now people were talking to them and calling them by name and asking them to help. And their gaze came up off the floor and they became less invisible and they began to look the world in the eye. And I learned how to watch my kids, watching you guys talk to my kids. And what a gift that was, you know. And we started doing stuff and we do all the eating meetings. I got sober in June. And so by the next year, there's picnics, and we, you know, we know a ton of people because we we go to all these meetings, and we went to an eating meeting in June, and and uh, now my kids are like five and seven, and I'm a year sober, and we get to this picnic, and I said, if you guys want to go play, go ahead, and I always said that to them, and they never went and played, they always just stuck by me, which is fine. I only saw them on weekends, and this day, about half an hour after we got there, I felt a tug on my leg. And my son, Robbie, said, Mom, I just wanted to let you know, if you need us, we're over here playing. And what I realized was that was the first day they knew they could let me out of their sight and that I would be there when they got back. And it took a year. You know, it took a year. And my mom and I talked when I was a year sober, and we decided it really didn't benefit anybody for me to get the kids back all in the name of family unity because by now they had been with her four, they were with her three years before I got sober. So when I was a year sober, they'd been at her house four years. They were in one of the best school districts in the state. They were in a clean, safe neighborhood. They'd had the same friends into the school system for four years. And I lived in a 10th floor efficiency in a crappy part of town in the Cincinnati Public School District. It just didn't make sense to drag them down to where I was in the name of, you know, reuniting the family. And so mom and I talked and we decided that I would catch up to them because they were doing what they were supposed to do. I was a disruption in their life. And I started going back to school and uh, you know, eventually moved out closer to them. In the meantime, when I was, I don't know, I guess about a year and a half sober, they had this thing called Monday Night All Group Gratitude, where different groups from around the city would come in. Each Monday, one group would come in and one of their members would speak. And, uh, cause I pretty much did all my meetings down at Oak Street. And you know, the. The, uh, I told you I wasn't real suburban, and, and a lot of the suburban meetings were just kind of discussion meetings, and they get a little dry, and sometimes their speakers were not as riveting as I would like, you know, and so it was Mount Washington night, and I thought, oh, great, you know, and this guy gets up to talk who I've never seen before, so how sober can he be, right, because I know everybody in my mind, no self-centeredness here, and uh, and he just gave this great talk. I mean, great talk. And I told him, you know, I, I always, I tell everybody, I just, I, I listened to him talk and I looked at him and I said, you know, I want what he has and I am willing to go to any lengths to get it. <laughs> and uh, 
that's his favorite part of my story. <laughs> but I, uh, we actually, we didn't start dating for another year, but we started crossing paths a little, and, and the next year, about when he was two and I was two and a half, we started to date, and, uh, and we courted. You know, we made a decision to date with our clothes on because neither of us really had ever done that, you know? I mean, my sponsor had to tell me that dating and sex weren't the same thing. Who knew that? And, uh, and his sponsor is telling him things like, okay, Chuck, ask her out ahead of time, go to the door, you know, walk her to the car, open the car door, be sure she's in the car before you close the car door. I mean, we were clueless. And, uh, and we did AA dating. You know, we did what we do. We went to coffee before the meeting or coffee after the meeting. And when you get home at night, you're never really sure if you should kiss goodnight or say the Lord's Prayer. And, uh, but we fell in like, and we fell in love, and uh, we were married a year and a half later, and in July we'll be married 18 years, you know, and we are just having a blast. When we caught up to the kids, we, we actually bought a house in the neighborhood next to them, you know, because they were in a pricey neighborhood. But, but we got a two-family, and, uh, and so we got bicycles for them one year for Christmas, and we thought, well, we'll get bikes too because they're still pretty little. And the first warm day, you know, we all go for a bike ride. Now we're in the suburbs, and we go for a bike ride, and it's, you know, March. And this guy's out mowing his grass because they do that there. They mow their grass a lot. We'd been down where it was concrete, and, you know, our cat, when we first moved out there, our cat was free freaking out because of the, like the crickets and the, you know, I mean, he was used to like ambulances and glass breaking, but the crickets were just too much for him <laughs> and the quiet, you know? So, so we get out on our bicycles and we're riding through and, you know, this guy waves to us while he's mowing his grass because they wave out there too. And, you know, and, and I mean, where we've been, if hands were up, there was a gun somewhere. And so, but he waves, so I wave. And about the time I wave, I look around and I realize, you know, here we are, dad, mom, big brother, little sister, we're riding through the suburbs and on our bicycles. And, and that old Zoom camera in my head came back for just a minute and I kind of looked where I was and I just thought, oh my God, I used to own my own Harley Davidson. And I'm riding through the suburbs on a lavender huffy. <laughs> when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, if you had said to me, Beth, guess where you're going to be when you're four years sober? I don't think that's what I would have guessed, you know. But the most amazing thing about that moment is right there, right then, there's nowhere I wanted to be but on that bike with those kids. And that is light years away from not even knowing if I know how to love them. You know, because that's what happens here. God changes hearts here. You know, we take the action. God changes our hearts. And I learned to find that relationship with him here. You know, the, the big book says that a spiritual experience is really just an awareness of the presence of God. And so step 12 just tells me I become aware of the presence of God as the result of these steps. I didn't find God in step three. I didn't turn anything over to God in step three. If I'd have known how to do it, I wouldn't have needed the other nine steps. You know, the steps are the path I took to form a relationship with God, which has grown and deepened over the years as any relationship will. And what a miracle that is. You know, I, uh, we have a friend who says he thinks God gave us AA to just keep us busy and out of his way <laughs> so that he could run our lives. And, uh, 
you know, so it's like, I joke sometimes AA is my shiny thing, you know, I'll be starting to think about my life and think about what I should do about my life and the phones rings and it's a new girl and it's like God going, woohoo, shiny thing, Beth, look at the keys, you know, <laughs> oh, okay. And I've gotten a life beyond my wildest dreams here, you know, I, uh, I mean, I came in when it, when they tell you when you're new, if you put a list down of everything you want when you get here, you'll sell yourself short. And like so many cliches, it's true. You know, all I wanted when I got here was my driver's license back, maybe not to get arrested anymore, and maybe to marry again someday, preferably to a guy with a job, you know? <laughs> and I've gotten so much more here. I, we did get custody of the children. Um, the kids started, we found a house in their neighborhood. The kids started fifth and seventh grade walking out their front door, their mom and dad's house like everybody else. And we went to our home group and handed out candy. It's a boy, it's a girl. And we'd only been married a year, so people thought maybe we were having, you know, a baby or something. They're like, oh, are you having kids? And we said, yeah, they're 9-11, isn't it awesome? <laughs> Where else can you do that but here, you know? The book says great events will come to pass. And that was a great event. And, uh, you know, we got the kids, and then they turned into teenagers, and then we wondered why we got the kids. And... <laughs> We had some rough years with our son. We didn't really know if we'd ever all sit in the same room again. And, uh, you know, 10 years later, he just bought a house three miles from ours in North Carolina on purpose. And, uh, and you know, our daughter. So th those little kids who were four and six when I got sober are 26 and 28 now. And they're fine adults, you know. And, and uh, my son served in the Army. And... Uh, my daughter's still in the army. She just actually got back from Iraq last week. She was there for a year. And, uh, you know, we're just blessed beyond our wildest dreams. I still like my husband. You know, we do AA together. We have a blast. Well, you know how it is. There are a lot of people in love. They don't like each other much, but they're in love. <laughs> we like each other. We like to hang out together. We like, you know, uh, we're both active in AA. We're both sponsored. We don't sponsor each other. You know, we sponsor other people. Uh, we have a Thanksgiving breakfast at our house every year for everybody we sponsor and their families. And we have 45 people there this year, you know. And it's like the big book says... I, I used to wonder if I'd get my kids back, and my sponsor would say, oh, it's in the book, and they always say that, you know, and I'm, look, I'm pretty literal, so I'm looking for, like, if you're a single mother, and your mother has your kids, and you don't, <laughs> one day along the line, I just saw this one little line that said, families will be reunited, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll be darn, it is in the book, and we don't always get our family family back, and sometimes we shouldn't. But, you know, I always wanted to be the best or the worst, you know, just God, don't let me be average. And what I have found here is that my strength comes from being one of many. And my place in the world comes from being one of many. And that the whole time I was out there trying to be Beth the cheerleader and Beth the night auditor and Beth Jim and Sally's daughter, what I was really looking for was just Beth, child of God, you know, and, and learning how to play nice with all the other children of God. And we get to Alcoholics Anonymous and that families will be reunited, you know. I mean, it's like, here we are. What is this except a big family reunion of the children of God? You know, if you're new, welcome home.
Big Frank from Denver, Colorado, speaking at Top of O-Top Roundup, 1996, October 10. Let's pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change those things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Here's Frank. My name's Frank. I'm an alcoholic. Sean has consented to keep me in coffee. I still got this full hand syndrome. I don't know where I picked it up. Somewhere <laughs> along the way. First, I want to thank you folks uh, for the accommodations and your hospitality and your friendliness. Uh, you don't know me. I hope it lasts. <laughs> but it won't break my heart if it doesn't. The, uh, that kind of an introduction, you know, the lay down the gauntlet, you better be good kind of an introduction. Uh, I don't bite. Uh, the, um, I'm assuming this group has been represented, which has been represented to me as a group that's committed to fundamental orthodox AA as set forth in the first 164 pages of the big book. Now, if you're not in that position, I suggest you will not be very happy with what follows. <laughs> Fair warning. Everybody's here. Okay. Uh, the, uh, you have treated me very well. I do want you to know I appreciate it. Gary and Julie, uh, brought me up from Indianapolis. And, and by the way, I particularly want to thank Matthew for setting up my travel arrangements. I can almost stand up straight now. <laughs> See, he sat me, I've been, I've been had before. <laughs> Another by an innocent brood like that before. <laughs> but uh, their revenge does not lie in my heart. I got in this lovely airplane and uh, 727, I have finangled the seat he had in arrangement. By the escape door, I had a lot of room for my legs, right? We take off from Denver and we're flying. We're going. We're going to go to Chicago, and then we're going to come into Indianapolis, and Jerry's going to meet me, and I'm going to go to French Lick, which I anticipate is some kind of a log lodge up in the mountains. <laughs> so uh, we're in the air an hour, and all the ones are turning around, taking us back. They can't get a flap up or some damn thing. Scared the shit out of me. <laughs> and they land that airplane. I sit in Denver for two or three hours. Now, they've made a connection directly to Indianapolis, but it's an hour later than I have arrangements for my pal to pick me up, right? Will I hitchhike to French Lake? Big question. <laughs> and this is all due to Matthew's planning. I don't believe in coincidences. <laughs> then uh, the new plane, I'm stuck next to a very big man and against a window with my knees underneath my chin. <laughs> See, I have a spike about 
an inch long on my spine, which if cramped up impedes my sciatic nerve, causing me a great bit of damn discomfort. <laughs> and I had two gosh darn hours of that discomfort. But I forgive you, Matthew. <laughs> That happens kneeling. <laughs> I swear, I'm not as nice as George, and I'm not as nice as George. Forgive me, but I only swear when there are no other words in the vocabulary to express what is truly meant. I was talking to some pals of mine about qualify. Uh, I think it's essential. Um, to suggest you may have drank a little something. Uh, for example, a friend of mine and I were on a 12-step call. A man and his wife, immaculately well-groomed, lovely home. And they called AA, and the two of us went to this poor, distressed man. And here is this healthy bozo who had two glasses of sherry every night. And uh, we did not identify. We told him that it has nothing there that even resembled alcoholism and so forth, and we left. And it wasn't two months later that he was in AA and he'd been properly 12-stepped with a more understanding person. But I'm one of those that believes that Alcoholics Anonymous is for alcoholics. Uh, period. Nothing. Nobody else. Just alkies. Now, we have a lot of people who are, have also a drug history, but they are alky. I do not believe in dual problems. Uh, why? Because if the heat gets too much on one problem, they jump to the other problem. Now, you're either alky or not. So this rather unusual orthodox bill. By the way, if I say anything you cannot reconcile with the big book, I'm wrong. Uh, I don't believe that alcohol is an addiction. My first strong influence was a man named Gene at York Street. You notice I did not say sponsor. I asked him to be my sponsor. He said he would, and he denied it all the years to his death that he ever said such <laughs> He said it wasn't in the big book, and, and that's the way that went. But he had more influence on my life than anyone except my father and my uncle. My uncle was a drunk. His influence was negative. Uh, I'll give you a... Uh, anyway, he dis distinguished between the drunk and the addict. He said, now, you take a man up in the, the shack in the woods, chain him up, and you shoot him with heroin or crack or something three or four shots, you've got an addict. He says, you take that same normal man up there and you pour whiskey down him with a funnel or alcohol enemas or in the vein, any way you want to. No matter how long you do it, if he's a normal man, all he, when you get down, all you want to do is get away from him. If he's an alky, he's going to want to marry you. <laughs> the, uh, I have... 
followed that. I am a real alky. A real alky. That's been held in contempt in some circles. But I am an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. I will never be normal. I gave it a good shot. And I failed. Um... I was asking my pals about qualifying. What do you think? They said, first place, you want to talk about loss of control, which is, of course, the key factor. If you can't keep yourself from starting drinking or when you start, you can't control the amounts you take, you're probably alcoholic. Uh, I couldn't drink in the morning, but rarely, because I couldn't stop. Uh, I know a lot of alkies can drink and get well in the morning. I had to stay sick as long as I could. I was a daily drinker, a volume drinker. Um, honey, this is the end of it. Never again. I love you very much. This is all there is. I'm so sorry. And before dark, I'm in the bar. Well, I must not have really meant it. Honey, so I don't know what happened, but this is all. And then I'm back in the bar. Uh, I won't drink in court. Not ever. Until I drank in court. I had a, a death penalty case that fall before I came in. Uh, the uh, recesses were imperative to me. I needed those recesses. And we had a judge who incidentally happened to be an AA, but he was really just a bastard. And he, and he used up those recesses, and I started going into the DTs. And I'd last till noon. One noon, we had to stay and do instructions, and I went crazy. They, uh, it was a, the only issue was death. The guy was an alcoholic who was on Librium for his comfort's sake, and drinking. And in a blackout, and he took his wife out in City Park in front of about 182 witnesses and shot her and threw her out of the car and drew his car over her and did all sorts of things, then went to the bar and had a drink and couldn't remember any of it. And uh, the only issue is whether or not that he'd be killed. And we tried, that case went on forever. Qualified for the death penalty in 45 minutes. Can you believe that? qualified for the death penalty in, 20, in 45 minutes. It takes weeks. But we had a, I had a senile lawyer an Alzheimer's who was working with me and a drunk. This guy was well represented, right? <laughs> and uh, verdict came in and they couldn't find me to take the verdict. They had to get the old man to take the verdict. And by the way, he, his life was saved. God, thank God. Probably on the street now killing some other woman. But uh, uh, that was getting towards the tail end of things. Things were getting a little rough around the edges then. Uh, I began to lose my tolerance. Now, a lot of people, I've been fired twice, jumped out from one job or another, and honey, I'm going on my own. This one guy, I wasn't there 30 days, at a lovely office and so forth. Came in, all my stuff's in a little pile on the desk. And I asked the wrong question, why, you know? Well, he said, you won't do what you're told. You lied to me. Uh, I can't ever find you. He says, you're a drunk. 
And he says, you're fired. And he, quite a little bit more he had to say. <laughs> I generally didn't ask dumb questions like that. I was pretty, but I did. And then, uh, honey, I've had enough of this being an employee. I'm going on my own. And two weeks later, I remembered it. When I, <laughs> I forgot all about it. That's what I thought had happened. Uh, made amends to this guy and said, how in hell did you pick me up so quick? He says, I had a brother that's a drunk, and I just was not about to have another one in my life. And there's the illusion now that drunks are, are socially acceptable, and everybody loves the alky and so forth. Don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? One of the best things we got going for us is that, uh, that we're not approved of and shouldn't be. I'm a recovered alcoholic. I'm a recovered. Most people who say they're recovering aren't. Somebody around 20 years in AA and says, I'm recovering, giving that modest little statement. You know, I got a big book that shows how, what is 100 men and women recovered. And if you're around, you're still playing the humility game, or more likely, I'm recovering, so I'm not responsible for my life. I can lie to you because I'm just recovering. I can screw you over because I'm just recovering. I'm just recovering, so you can't ask me to do the goddamn work in the big book. Yeah. So to you recovering alcoholics, good day. The, uh, see... You do the work, you recover. You get well. Now, I may lie to you, but it won't be because I'm a drunk. It's because I'm a lying son of a bitch, but not because of alcoholism. <laughs> I may steal for you. It's because I'm a thief. But it, whiskey didn't cause it because I have recovered from whiskey. Tell you about drunks. One drunk, see another drunk. I came into the dining room Friday night. Eating, I was eating alone. I look over there and I see that hat. Now, you see Clarence over there? See that hat? See? Now, that guy's got to be a drunk. Maybe. <laughs> I tell you about a hat like that. But that guy's got to be, or else he's a high dollar drug dealer or some goddamn thing, but I think he's a drunk. See? And uh, you know what that hat is? That's a bar hat. You wear that hat in the bar, you say, any son of a bitch can knock this hat off, can have it. That's a hat. We later became acquainted, and he and his lovely lady made some nice, nice acquaintanceships here. How to qualify. Asked lunch with my pal, this one, he said, we lost of control. Uh, okay. Well, move up to the front. <laughs> if you're hungry, get your ass up here. <laughs> yeah. You with me? If you need what I have, move up. Otherwise, bleed. <laughs> See, and you in the back. I used to run sheep. I had a sheep outfit over in the western slope of, of, of uh, Colorado. And uh, those sheep... The strays on the edge of the herd were the ones the bear and the coyote picked up. 
And I think the same thing is true in AA. The same thing is true in AA. Those people that sit in the back and around the edges and play it safe. And they're the ones that get picked off with whiskey. They're the ones that get picked off with whiskey. I do speak too, speak too soft once in a while, and I apologize. Good. <laughs> I don't think you need it. But listen, all right. Qualifying. How do you qualify? At least said loss of control. And another said, well, about the demoralization. So I'll talk about that. I became everything I despised in a human being. I was well raised. I was raised in a strong, loving home. I was disciplined. I was in church. I had a religious, I was given an education. And then I deteriorated bit by bit by bit. I became cruel and vicious beyond all belief. Tell a story about that. I'd play a game in the bar called Big Chicken. This was long before the end. And I'd play like I was a coward or less than I was or saying, and some guy was a girl, and I'd prod him a little, and he'd call me out, and then I'd take him out and beat his head in. And then this one night, there was this boy, and I got outside, and he knelt down in front of me and begged for me not to hit him. Now, one thing, if you lead in that life, you've got to stay asleep. You can't wake up. And that moment of great clarity came, and I realized what I had become. And I had become that which I despised. I sold my soul in the Denargo market. I stole, stole my clients' funds. I lied, and I deteriorated morally. Then, physically, well, I still have chronic cirrhosis. I had the DTs badly when I woke up. I'd have the DTs of the audio type. I'd walk down the street, and uh, I'd hear, Frank, Frank McKibben. Now, do I turn around or don't? Is there someone there? I blacked out a lot. I didn't really realize the extent of blacking out until after I sobered up. For example, uh, I had a guy come in, and this was a guy I knew better than a third of my clients I couldn't ever remember having seen before. And we'd play, who are you, and what did I promise I'd do for you, and did I take any of your damn money, or, and it was just awful, terrible time. Phone, I was too frightened to answer it, but too frightened to let it ring, uh, to go to court, I was early, you were sobering up. There was a guy in the luggage department of Bay DNF between my building and the courthouse. 
I'd go and he'd pull my guts together so I could face the court. And then on the way back, he'd pull my guts together so I could face the office. I had a big pile of papers on there. I was scared to death to open any of them up. And the priceless jewel who had been my secretary had betrayed me, got married and left. And I had, and I have this new woman who holds me in utter contempt. And rightly so. And then the third guy said, fuck it. I said, what in the world do you mean? I can't do that. He says, yeah, fuck it. I said, no, I don't understand you. He says, well, you got a job to do? And you say, fuck it, and you go drink. He says, you got to be in a court or someplace? They say, fuck it, and you go drink. Yeah. You've got to go home, and you say, fuck it, and go drink. So I understood that. And I became a hopeless, helpless alcoholic. Recovery was tough. We did not have access to the steps that are available today. But I'm going to tell you now how I work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I just completed the work. I'm going to share that work with you, if you will bear with me, please. This is how I did the steps during this last time through. I begin with a step before the steps. Now, you've asked an individual to read this out of the fifth step chapter of the steps, but you didn't go back far enough. Because it starts with saying, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to do it, then you're ready to take certain steps. That's the step that has to be done before, and I do that each time I go through the steps. That commitment, by this work I will live, by this work I will die. I will go to any length, not only to maintain sobriety, to reach new awareness and new understanding, to improve my conscious contact with God and to have him in my life and in my heart. And I'm very clear about that. I review each step, and I know the difficulties they'll face and the uncertainties and the unknown. And I make that commitment, and I remember the time and place that I do that. I used to do it with someone to em emphasize that. And that's before I begin. Then, each time I sit down to write, I review the first three proposals. I do it in this fashion. I do not seek answers. I'm not looking for knowledge. I'm seeking a spiritual experience. The line of the first three steps are directed to give me direct conscious contact with God and that experience. Now, the first step is we admitted we were alcoholic and that our lives had become unmanageable. Am I a real alcoholic? I've been sober a long time now. Uh, perhaps I was... An emotional drinker, a nut. And because of my, and that was true, because of my, <laughs> of my deep fears and my terrible emotional, my terrible and emotional consider that's why I drank, I am now stable by anybody's criteria, mentally and emotionally stable. I'm in a profession that tests it on a regular basis. So now I can drink normally. Now, 
difficulties. Maybe that's why I drank. God knows I had difficulty. I had one set of people that wanted to kill me. One fellow that I had kicked in the head in the Hilton Hotel and a pearl-handled gun rolled out of his briefcase and I kicked him again and kicked the gun away and the cops came in. It was kind of a messy little deal. But I, he said, I'm going to have them get you. And then I went home to my house on the second floor and I sat in there and I got out. I had a 44 pistol and I got it out. Sat in there with my underwear and left waiting for them, right? <laughs> then I got scared of the damn gun. <laughs> so I unloaded the gun. I sat with the empty gun. Then I got scared of the empty gun and I sat in terror, put the gun away, sat in terror the rest of the night, waiting for them. But there was some real limbs, too. Uh, I had a lot of trouble after me, people after me, for money, for unpaid debts, for undone work, or well, I had some judges that was, thought it was inconvenient for me to continue the practice of law. I thought uh, another, another block thought would be very nice if I got a little iron door therapy to help me with my conditions. Uh, that's why I drank, because of all that trouble. But that's all straightened out. The amends have been made. They've all been cleaned up and removed. And now I can drink normally, right? Or perhaps I'm a man who has locked, lost his legs. That I will never be like another normal human being. And I will die in this fashion. And that if I take one drink, I'm off to the races. And if I get started, I don't ever say that I couldn't make it back. Because I worked with too many long-term sobriety that have made it back, a lot that haven't. But uh, I've worked with better than a dozen over, over 20 years that have drank. Friends of mine, 12 years that drank a little while ago, so on. So I don't say that, because that's not true, because that says there's a limit on the power of God. But most that drink that after lengthy sobriety don't make it. Had another friend who was 32 years sober, was responsible for a good portion of the sobriety in northern Colorado, and uh, he took pills and went, became a treatment counselor, took pills six years, took him six years to die, couldn't get back into that. Lovely man, lovely man, too bad. Alcoholism, the true alcoholic is a victim of a deadly disease. To the true alcoholic, to drink is to die. Am I like that? Am I like that? Well, maybe I need to try the Marty Mann test. But about two drinks a day for 30 days, more or less. No more, no less, and don't skip a day. I'm a great believer in that. By the way, I tried that drink. I was pitched by a man who had broken his anonymity in law school, and he took me in that little pink birthday cake, and they talked about God, and I said goodbye. But he told me too much, and one was this Marty Manta. I got drunk four days in a row, and God, I didn't remember doing it twice over two years. 
We have three members of our group who have done that, taken it, and are back on the street as normal people who were sold into AA for whatever reason. So if you can't get it resolved, and it's vital that you do, let me tell you what happens to a straight NAA. He doesn't talk drunk talk. He does not have the commonality of experience. And while he speaks English language, he does not truly know the transaction that passes with one drunk talking to another drunk. And they get sicker, and they get crazier. And God help you if you're not... Don't let anybody sell you your alcoholism. Find out. There's another real problem. To come in as a straight, you're starting a spiritual program that demands rigorous honesty with a fundamental lie. That's treacherous. That can really get you sick. Now... My life had become unmanageable. AA's questions do not beg answers. They're to lead you to experience. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, but our lives had become unmanageable. What does that mean? How is it with money? What about public service? The lease? Master charge, visa, discover, so forth. Is this what I intended? Can I manage this? Without God, can I manage my financial affairs? My ego, can I straighten out my own ego? Can I relieve myself of this terrible burden? Personal relationship. Do I know what I should tell you here? Can I manage this conference? Can I see who needs what, who needs to hear what? Can I manage this? Of myself, I am nothing. Without God, I am lost. You notice I did not answer those questions. I remember my life. What about my relationship with Jenny? Last night. All I have to do, last night, talk to her on the phone. Yesterday, last week. Tuesday, is that what I intended? Gotta love that girl. Can I manage that? Can I maintain it? How about in my group? Can I manage this? Can you feel the tension? That's what that tension, you're gonna follow through the steps. If you're a comfort lover, you will not enjoy this. Prozac is the new comfort weapon of choice. And if you're seeking comfort, go the Prozac route until it does whatever it's going to do to you. Uh, it's not new. When I came in, it was barbiturates, just moving into Librium and then Valium and then Lithium and then da-da-da-da-da-da-da. This isn't new. Uh, awful things have happened. There's tragedies out of that. But AA is not about solving the social problem of alcoholism. Not very many people get sober in AA. Did you notice how many more younger sobriety there was here than older? I'll bet they all moved to Denver, right? The oldest. 
sure. The Denver must have moved here, right? That's why. See, old Dougie Tripp at York, uh, iron worker, uh, legs were mutilated, and he sat there in York all the time. And uh, he figured maybe 6% of the people that come into AA get to stay sober. I think that's generous, but it meets pretty close to my experience. There's a deadly thing here. I may not be too nice a deliverer of the message, but all I'm talking about is that I know somebody here is going to die and die pretty quick. Maybe we can make a difference here tonight. I know some of you are going to drink before the year's out. And these are people that are committed to the work. I will fight that. Uh, George. George's sponsor is evidently a fan of mine, I suppose. He said his best wishes, and he said, George, spend some time with Frank. If, if you can get past his personality, you'll like it. <laughs> Jesus. I don't know if he said that or George is the natural diplomat. I <laughs> Can't imagine, until I realize experientially of myself, I am nothing. Without God, I am lost. And I know it. Not as an intellectual exercise. We got a lot of intellection pumping away in AA. God help me. Then I move to the second step with this experience. Do I believe or am I willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself who will for me resolve all this and take me into a whole state of consciousness which I cannot imagine, I cannot conceive of? How do I get past here? And everybody here in this room is here. Now, how in the hell are you going to get past here? And the second step is, uh, says here. There's the past, past here. Or perhaps this is all there is. This is all there is. Well, if this is all there is, God is not all. This is limited. For me, he's not all. It may be all for you, but not for me. So God is not God. And I'm an atheist. Do you understand that? Was that too quick for you? Am I willing to change my mind? When I came into AA, I assumed open-mindedness meant that I would just add this new knowledge on top of all this vast wisdom that I already... I couldn't hit my ass with both hands. And that hasn't changed. The ego still works in the same fashion. This phenomenon of the reconstruction of the ego. It's a terrible thing. Let me tell you, the longer you're sober, the more difficult to work. Don't make any mistake about it. And the easier and better your life. But there's no arrival place. I always want certainty, reassurance, and an arrival place. And it just thrusts you more into the unknown. And then the third step. Made a decision to turn our life and our will over to the care of God as we understood him. To utterly abandon myself to God. Now the first requirement of the third step is the key. That any life 
based on self-will cannot succeed. That's a requirement you got to get past. Decisions made on what I believe to be true can never work. Ultimately, you'll fail. You'll fail personally. All right. Am I willing to be an agent of God? To sit here and speak in God's shoes as I speak now? Pretty audacious, isn't it? Am I willing to be a servant of God? Am I willing to be an employee and stay close and do his work? Then the third step prayer. God, I offer myself to thee to do with me and to build with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. Of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life, may I do thy will always. And now I'm ready to write. And I wrote. I'm going to take the liberty I brought my inventory with you, and I'm going to read some selected portions of it to show you how I wrote inventory this time. individuals inventory in the second column carefully in detail what I resent and then in the third column I analyze my ego the third column is what I believe to be true this is the knowledge of how I know who I am, how I know things should come out, how I know what I need, how I know you should behave and treat me, both men and women, and what money is. Simple, self-esteem, that's who I am. Ambition, what should happen. Security, what do I like or need, right? Personal relations, what are people of the same sex, as I, how they should behave and be and treat me. Sex relations, how a person of the opposite sex should be, so forth and treat me. Let's see how that works. You notice three columns. You notice I did not say four. Now the fourth column has been created by a group of people educated way past their intelligence. <laughs> That's right. The, the philosophers and the so forth. Now, if any of you would care to discuss with me, I'll be around. If you're around tomorrow morning, bring some inventory to me and I'll show you. Most of the time, it's just damn careless writing and draft, drafting. And even worse, you put a fourth column in, you can dodge experience. 
and you can get a conclusion and get release. How? That's what it is. Or you can call yourself names there. But remember, we're seeking experience. Let's see how that works. This is about a crazy client. This guy is certifiable. I mean, genuinely. Number one, he's crazy. Number two, he is a spoiled, woman-raised boy with temper tantrums. Number three, I can't control him even by threatening him to withdraw. He hides, number four, he hides behind his mother and she protects him and endorses his madness. She's an enabler. Number five, he whines and sulks. Six, he has his needs ahead of his child. This involved a rather complex custody case. Um, number one, and I write those down. I rewrite them as I go through because it makes it easier to fist step. Number one, he is crazy. Self-esteem, I'm saying. Ambition, to bring him to reason. I'm the healer. Personalization, there's no such thing as insanity. Just self-will, that is selfish, dishonesty, self-seeking, and afraid. All of which yield to me. Security, I need to seed, I need sane, compliant clients. Pocketbook, money equals sanity. Uh, you think it's funny. Why are you making decisions based on this horse shit like I Because you understand I know these things are true, right? You get the feel for it? Now, now they said, you look at you, they see where you're selfish, self-centered, uh, afraid, so forth. You think that isn't pretty evident there? That I'm hurt and trusted with this guy because I can't get along with it? Let's go on. He is a spoiled woman-raised boy with temper tantrums. Number two, self-esteem. I'm a man raised by men. Ambition, to give him balls. <laughs> self-esteem, serene, at peace, cool. That's another one. I got two things going here. I got two scenarios now. I'm a man's man, and now I'm Mr. Peace and Cool and Quiet. Wow. I wonder why I get confused in some of these situations. Ambition, uh, to smack him when he has a tantrum. <laughs> Sex relation, women insist that men raise their boys. Personal relations, a man is even-tempered, under control, strong and clear. He lives with others with love and reason. Ooh. Number three, I can't control him, even by threatening to withdraw. Self-esteem, I'm a lawyer. All powerful. I know people. I can manipulate anyone. <laughs> I see. Ambition. To control him and and treat and create him in my own image. Personal relations. All need me, yield to me gladly. Self-esteem. <laughs> I'm indispensable. I am important. I know what is best for you. Pocketbook, control equals money. Security, I need to control to be safe. Number four, he hides behind his mother and she protects and enables him. Self-esteem, brave, protected by God. That's me. <laughs> Captain Courageous, John Wayne, laugh while the Indians torture. 
Self-esteem, I'm independent, I'm dignified. Ambition, to install brains, courage, and dignity in the son of a bitch. <laughs> now this, you understand, this guy is a very sick man. <laughs> uh, Self-esteem, I need no endorsement or, or justification for others. I am God's child, justified by God, no matter what others think. Security, I need to stand alone. Reputation and prestige as a he-horse. Pocket money equals independence. Money equals courage. Money equals intelligence. He whines and sulks. Self-esteem, responsible. I take comes with equanimity and without complaint. Self-esteem, the humble man. <laughs> See, I got a little conflict here, don't I? Man. I let others be. I never try to manipulate them. <laughs> Self-esteem, the loving man. I never withdraw to get my way. Ambition, to have him act like a man, to take responsibility for his life. Personal relations, men are stoic, brave, open, loving, giving, selfless, humble. Security, I need the power to create him in my own image. Self-esteem, professional, I am immune to the whining insult. Now that's a piece of a client. I want to read a couple more. Is that all right? Okay. This is about a guy in AA, 33 years sober, a member of our group. Number one, he sneaks in secrecy like a jackal. Number two, he picks off the weak members of the group, buttonholes them, then panders to their weakness, to their detriment, and sometimes their death. Number three, he is a hypocrite. He does not practice what he preaches. For example, he's way late in his fifth step and probably has never made his amend. He works only, we, we have a pretty orthodox group. The average sobriety in our group is around 11 years, and it runs up into the high 30s. We have them even all the way through, all the way. We've been very effective in our group. He is a hypocrite. He does not practice what he preaches. Wait a minute. He works only with people, with money, or with pretty girls. <laughs> Number one, he sneaks in a secretive like a jackal. Self-esteem, group leader, guru, know everything about everybody. Self-esteem, I'm open, direct, I'm a lion. Ambition, to convert, or to convert him or drive him away from the herd. Security, I need open, direct members. Personal relations, all in the group are open, loving, and kind to each other. They're direct and they're honest. And so on. And it goes. You get the idea of high right? I'm not going to drag it on. I've written in many areas of my life, and it all seems absurd when you read it like this here, but it isn't when these are the terrible breaks. How could this be? I'm 30 years sober. I've written at least one in the try every year since I've been sober, and in the early two, three, and sometimes more. And here I am again with this stuff, same stuff. Now what do I do with it? Well, I got a friend named Gary, also, whom I fist up with it. I do it because I trust him. He's closed mouth. He is a friend. 
He's doing the work, has done it for many years, and I can trust him. I fished up with similar people uh, and who will feed back and will listen, will correct, and what about this? You missed this, and so forth. Then I get alone and I review my work and see if it's been thorough, pick up any loose ends that may have come up in the fish step. And then I face my God with a full awareness of my limitations. See, I'd love to go to God with clean hands, but I have to go with the awareness of this stuff. I have to go to Him as I am, with real awareness of my selfishness and my self-centeredness and my immaturity. And I say, God, yeah, I am. I pray that you remove from me every single defect of character that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and to my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. May I do your will always. Then I move to the eighth step, and I'm going to show you what I did with the eighth step. I'm going to show you with these amendments. This is what I did out of this work. I used the sacraments of penance of the Episcopal Church. I've used other, other things. This contains the seven deadly sins. And I mean, I'm going to switch the water here for a minute. Now. Thank you. excerpt, a line or two from, from each of these. Two of us met, and we went through these. And this is how this reads, and I'll show you what we did with them. Pride is putting self in the place of God. This is the first deadly sin. of the objective of our life. It's the refusal to recognize our status as creatures dependent on God. I'm just reading bits and pieces. Irreverence, ne direct neglect of worship of God. Sentimentality, being satisfied with pious feelings and beautiful ceremony. Presumption, dependence on self rather than on God. Consequent neglect of the means of our grace, sacraments, and prayer. Distrust, refusal to recognize God's wisdom. This is all under pride. Oversensitiveness, and then it goes on to impenitence vanity and arrogance and snobbery. That's all under pride. And then anger is open rebellion against God, resentment, refusal to discern, accept, or fulfill God's vocation, dissatisfaction with talents, abilities, opportunities, etc. Pugnacity, retaliation, and it goes on with envy and jealousy and malice. I'm just reading headed covetousness, inordinate ambition, domination, prodigal prodigal, penurious, gluttony, lust, seven deadly sins. We spent actually three sessions of about an hour piece together on this. But what we did was put together solutions to this. We haven't touched our inventory yet. And this is not inventory that we did. And...
know he had so many of them. But for example, amend their life, meditation, regular meditation, 10-step work. Incidentally, I've got to do a workshop in the morning on 10, 11, and 12, so I'm not going to talk about them tonight. But you're to know that they are what the program is truly about. And what we're talking about tonight is how you get a foundation, so that is a real possibility for you. Um, Open-mindedness, open-mindedness, willing to change my mind. See, as we go through this, this inventory has shown me where distrust, fight to be brave, cheerful, and hopeful, accept, obey God's own will, and so forth. We went clear through these with solutions for each one of kindness and love, of listening, of patience, of honesty, and so on. Very carefully over those three sessions. And then we made amends. And I've, I've got some amends here that I want to talk to you about. This is the guy that was in the office with me. He was a tenant of mine. He was a younger man in his 30s. And... Uh, he had told another friend of mine that I had stolen his cases, that I had not given him his phone calls, and what else? I wrote inventory on that. Now, how do I deal with this? Well, I set that aside, and then out of the inventory, this is the amend that came out of it. And I went to it. But also I have to solve this other problem of his bed, by which it was absolutely untrue. I did none of those things. He just a big mouth kid. And uh, how do I do that without continuing more trouble? So I went to him. And now the inventory I discovered that I had set myself up to be hurt. And the amend I made to him, I said, Pete, I have patronized you. I have been superior to you. I was totally dominant and controlling in the office. I treated you like an apprentice. This is an experienced seasoned attorney. He's a criminal lawyer, which I don't practice. I was presumptuous asking you to take an individual's case for no fee because I didn't. Our relationship did not go that far. I presume the relationship did not exist. Then I told him, now I understand you believe that I stole some of your clients, took some of your clients, and that uh, I withheld your phone calls and so forth. He said, oh, no, he said, I never believed that in the world. That was thinking that was the end of it. And they left that. Well, that was one. That was relatively easy. I made apology to that sick man, and he left after I made the amend. And he was pandering to my ego to dominate and control him and manipulate him. But the minute that I made the amend and apologized for that, told him we wouldn't do that, he could be as crazy as he wanted to, and God, he was blowing me. You know, we'd get the case all stay and we'd blow it in front of the judge and, you know, kept out of jail. He's crazy enough the judge didn't put him in jail. And that's it. But the minute that I make amends, turned into a totally different seemingly very sane man, and got in the way. 
cook me with my own bullshit. <laughs> he had more experience than that, right? Uh, now here was was the the key one. This was that other guy in the group. You understand we've been friends for years. And I told him that, that I had uh, distance from him, I avoided him, that I teased him, I'd take shots at him. The meeting, our meeting is pretty easy to do that. I want to talk a little bit about groups that you're asking to get with you all the time is a quarter after nine year time. The, uh, uh, I told him that uh, those things. Apologized to the shop. That it was judgmental. I didn't. I, I had patronized him also. And I got a smart mouth. And he said, "Yes, you have." He says, "You have sabotaged me over the last two years." He says, "You put me down." So forth and on and on. Which, to a large portion, is true. And. He said, I've already leave the group because of you. And he would have been justified in doing that. And then I talked to him about the distance he had in the non-participation. We had a long talk. And I agreed that I would support him. And uh, nobody's going to walk on eggs in our group. You understand that? But it would be in context and with friendship and love. That was a rough one. There were other amends to my wife, my secretary, to other people in AA. But you get the gist of the work, do you understand? That's what I did. That was my experience with this last work. What happened then? Well, oh, I've got one other piece I should have read to you. There's an inventory about the, the thieves that stole my truck. And the inventory goes on about, now I'll have to go to the insurance company and I'll have to make a claim and they'll rip me off. And uh, I've got I've got a Dodge pickup with a Brahma topper and a handmade kit in the back that you can make into a bed with storage boxes. And we're loaded with tools and drills and camping equipment and shooting equipment and so forth. And it's gone. They've stolen. I bet it I was in court with this crazy nut. <laughs> I come out and I've been dumped in a in a, a restraining order situation that I should have won blindfolded. I come out and the truck's gone. And yeah, I can't be. Drove around the truck. Went to the police department. Called the insurance company, made the claim. Started this long list of personal property I had in there. Went to Sears and Roebuck, priced all the tools. You can't believe it, right? And then I get this call from George. Frank, I found your truck. And I've been looking here, and the truck is parked over here. I have a white ticket on well, this is what I figured would happen. I was a little careless a couple of years before, and a magic force came into my head. An evil force. It's been accumulating over the two years. And that force came and poked my truck with invisibility and moved it over to 
that George stole my truck. <laughs> oh, God. And then I had to go back. By the way, the insurance company has now canceled me for too many claims. That's the truth. <laughs> and then the plumbing broke in our house, in our basement, and it cracked. And they dug up our patio. And they canceled the insurance. They won't renew my lease. This is what's happened if you do the work, right? <laughs> I tell you, there's going to be a change in my life. You better like dealing with power in the unknown, or don't mess with this stuff, because it's real. And that's where I'm at now. I'm juggling with 10, 11, and 12. Because you move into a new state, you have to put everything in place again. You can have nothing, and I'll talk about that in the morning. Uh... Anybody that doesn't work the steps on a regular basis is an idiot. Uh, I don't know. You know, you're begging, you plead. I'm trying to talk to those six people that are going to drink and the one or two that are going to die. And for Christ's sake, change your mind. Change your mind. What is it worth? You cannot believe the glory that's available to you. You cannot. You can't. There's no way except the power and the love of God in your heart. I wish I could tell you. It's more than comfort. Sometimes it's so damned uncomfortable. Makes you weep. I started this work. I took it, and then it took me. You know. And that going out of control is a, can be a hairy business. See, you're methodically, piece by piece, Destroying your belief system. These are your reference things. This tells you what's right, what's wrong, what's up, what's down, what's good, what's bad. And you're wiping it out of your life. Now how do you know whether to turn left, turn right, what's safe, what's not safe, right? I was thinking about blackouts. I, I remember Matthew. Matthew was sitting on the curb and just bawling his heart out. Pal come up and says, Matthew, what are you in hell's the matter with you? He says, What's the matter, Matthew? He says, My girlfriend, sex. He says, Sex. Yes, sex. She wakes me up in the morning with sex. Then before breakfast, more sex. After breakfast, sex. Before lunch, sex. I guess I have to fight to get back to work. And more sex. And then I come home from work and there's sex. And then I, before I go to bed, sex on into the night. He says, well, for Pat's sakes, he says, what's wrong with that? He says, I can't remember where I live. says the only authority we have is a loving God 
as it's expressed in our group conscience. How do you ascertain that? What a challenge. To gather as a group and try to find out what the will of God is for your group. What is your group conscience going to be? Here is what we do with some success in that respect. The chairman is just a timekeeper, nothing more. We go around the room and each person has one minute to suggest a topic that he wants discussed. The group then votes whether or not they want to discuss it. If they don't want to discuss it, uh, the minority opinion is heard from why certain people believe we should discuss it and then if uh, that probably ends it if it is chosen to discuss it each person has a minute to talk on the subject our group conscience is you cannot pass in group conscience our group conscience is everybody attends group conscience we use full meeting time for this we don't hold a business meeting after the meeting. Why do we do this? It makes it virtually impossible to politic the group. And it saves individuals becoming a personality cup thing. Gary's group, Frank's group, and so forth. It stops that poison. Then it's voted on. Again, minority opinion is, is listened to. We pray before the meeting. It works very well. We're asking God's will for us collectively. It makes it very exciting. This is what our group conscience has developed. This is the format of our group as it exists now. It's just been changed. The first 10 minutes, which has not been tried yet, uh, we've never had birthday cakes in our group. Why? Because we left a group where birthday meetings were destroying the group. And we were having bad meeting after bad meeting after bad meeting. And we decided that in this group we would have the best possible chairman and the highest quality meetings. So our group conscience is that there must be at least five years sober before you can share in that group. You must understand we have other meetings where younger sobriety can share and so forth. But not in this meeting, not in the home meeting. The... Um, Topic must be out of the hundred, first 164 pages of the big book. We don't believe in the stories because most of them are corrupt now. The, uh, oh, are we bad? Anyway, but we, we've got a, an unusual history of sobriety in that group. The uh, first 10 minutes are for birthdays now, and the first come, first serve, gets a birthday for that month, starting 10 days before the month, and they can fight first come for accepted. Anyone under five years has priority during any given month, and they give a 10-minute talk, and then we commence the, build, the meeting, and this is what our meeting has always been from then on a regular format. The chairman asks for announcements. Uh, uh, introductions and so forth opened with a serenity prayer we read all of the fifth chapter the meeting we have a meet, group conscience meeting every two months the meeting before the group conscience we uh, read all of the traditions in the long form 
and I strongly suggest the long form. Your short form's got some holes in it. That anybody with a desire to stop drinking can become a member. They corrected that in the long form. Anybody who's an alcoholic and wants to start drinking. A lot of people aged in day just on that. Well, I'm a drug addict. Well, I want to stop drinking and impose themselves upon it. But that's why we, one of the reasons we use the long form. Um, and then it's read again before the group conscience. So we keep clear of what we're doing and why we're doing it. The, uh, we're all very active 12-stepping. Uh, you'll hear the 12-stepping's dead, you can't get 12-step, it's not true. I have gone to judges or the lawyers, so forth. I keep, I call it my root cellar. And uh, I'm getting off track, aren't I? Group conscious. Then we, uh, the chairman introduces the topic, talks to it for a brief period of time, I forget what it is, five, ten minutes, introduces the topic. And then we draw lots and force people speak to it, five minutes apiece. And then we open the meeting for crossfire. And anybody can ask anybody in the meeting any topic about AA within 164 pages. And uh, that keeps everybody pretty honest and pretty much on track. Sometimes it gets a little rough around the edges. But most of the time, it draws out incredible amounts of information about the step. And then we conclude with the Lord's Prayer. Pass the basket. We're self-supporting. That's about what I have. God bless you all. Hope I've given you something you can live with.